Well, good morning. Isaiah 55 is, well, quite a chapter in and of itself, but there's a couple of verses in there that probably are familiar to you, certainly not unfamiliar. Verse 8, God reminds us through the prophet Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you noticed that when we encounter a problem or meet with a difficulty in this life, we really have an expectation of how and often when God should solve the problem. And it's usually right away and in the way that is easiest and inconveniences us the least. When our car breaks down on the side of the road, the easiest and best solution to us, at least from our perspective, is that God would miraculously heal our car, right? But perhaps, just perhaps, he intends for you to meet some mechanic that day who needs to hear the gospel. Perhaps if you had kept going, you would have been a part of that multi-car pileup. Perhaps a good Samaritan who stopped to help you has their own personal crisis and you're able to minister to them. There are any number of very real scenarios that could be part of God's bigger plan. But people often think, we often think, that God should do what we expect of Him and what we expect Him to do. But why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? One of the most important things for us to learn about God is that he does not take his instructions from us. As we've already read, he doesn't see things as we see them. He doesn't do things as we would do them. He often, quite often, takes us by surprise. The way in which God uses the most unexpected persons, situations, and circumstances to answer prayer helps us to develop perseverance, it helps to sanctify us, it helps to teach us to expect the unexpected when it comes to God. Nowhere is this truer than when he is working to increase and grow our faith. We began last week to look at one of the best and well-known stories in the Bible. And I wonder if you wouldn't turn there again in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17 as we continue with this story. A story that moves us, as we began to look at last week, from fear to faith. If you joined us last week, you remember we found ourselves in the Valley of Elah. A great and fearful shadow had settled over that valley. On a day about 1000 BC, the Israelite army was in position on the hills on the northern side of the valley. And their terrible enemies, the Philistines, were lined up on the hills opposite them to the south. And in between stood the valley of Elah. And in that valley of Elah, we saw last week a huge, a terrifying Philistine fighter. His name was Goliath. He looked scary with his dazzling armor, his huge, his heavy, his lethal weapons of destruction. He sounded scary as he shouted his abusive words at the Israelite army 
he was terrifying. And we asked the question, we thought about, we contemplated what it must have been like to be there among the Israelites with their King Saul on that day, looking out at that terrible enemy, shaking with fear, looking that day for a Savior. And we began to think about how in a very real sense we can, and in fact we should, identify with the trembling Israelites that day. There are enemies, enemies, enemies that are too big for us to handle. Like Goliath. We remember how the writer of Hebrews provided us an all too true description of what life is like. And this is what it's like. In Hebrews 2.15, the writer says that through fear of death, we are subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. That's what was behind the terror that Goliath stirred in the Israelites. It's behind so many of our fears in this life. And perhaps it's a bit less obvious, but death is our great enemy. Our Goliath, if you like, which entered the world because of sin, from which none of us is clever enough or strong enough to save ourselves. The enemy is too powerful, too terrible, too dangerous for us. We need a Savior. So that when we see the enemy, we recognize what fools we are going about life saying, oh, everything's okay, everything's fine, house is burning down around us, and it's all good, it's all okay. You see, that day, there wasn't a single Israelite who was foolish enough to say everything's okay, there's nothing wrong. We can handle this. No, you can't handle it. Take a good look at Goliath, and you'll find yourselves joining the Israelites, as we see in verse 11, dismayed greatly afraid, in need of a Savior. Well, come with me this morning, and we're going to look at how God responds to this fear, this fear that had settled in upon the Valley of Elah that day. And we'll observe God's unexpected answer to fear in 1 Samuel 17. And it's an answer that is repeated again and again through the pages of Scripture. God's answer is often unexpected. As we've already noted, and as one commentator puts it, God is the God of the unexpected. We left off last week in verse 11 with Saul and his armies dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, verse 12 of 1 Samuel 17 is where we pick up the story this week. And we are taken, rather unexpectedly, from the excitement, the terror, the fear of the Valley of Elah to a quiet little town, some 12 miles to the east town called Bethlehem, where a young boy lived, a boy named David, with his father Jesse and seven older brothers. We read in verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And so we're introduced, or more accurately reintroduced, as we'll see in a moment, to this young boy in Bethlehem whose name was David. Now David's three older brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shamar, were among those that we saw last week that were amidst part of the armies of Israel who were dismayed, greatly afraid at what they could see in front of them, this giant Goliath. 
But David, well, he was too young to join the army. He was just a boy. See verse 14. David was the youngest. It was the three eldest who followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David, you see, had the job of looking after his father's sheep in the hills around Bethlehem, and he would take messages from home to his brothers in Saul's army, and then he'd return back again because somebody had to look after the sheep. But before we go any further, notice again how strange it is that the story takes us from the really important things that are happening in the valley of Elah, things that we're wondering how they're going to work out, how is this terrifying, fearsome reality, the threat of death over the Israelite armies, how is this going to work out? What's going to happen with Goliath? We're taken to this quiet little town of Bethlehem to hear about a young boy who was too small to join his brothers in the army. It's a bit of a whiplash, isn't it? If you're reading the story for the first time, that's a shock. I mean, hang on a second. Take me back to the battle. There's a national crisis in the Valley of Elah. The state of the nation is at stake. Death was terrifying in the Valley of Elah. But we're taken to Bethlehem? What does this boy looking after his dad's sheep in the hills around Bethlehem have anything to do with the story? What's he got to do with the horror that is emerging in the Valley of Elah, the threat of death? This is quite unexpected. Well, there's a secret in 1 Samuel 16, which we haven't looked at in our study, but if you've read 1 Samuel, as I hope you will, maybe you've already started reading through it, maybe you've even gotten to chapter 16, you may remember. 1 Samuel 16, it's a small portion of it, describes this boy from Bethlehem and tells us that he'd been chosen by God to be Israel's next king. And at this point, very few people knew this. It was a very private matter, and there were only a few who were even aware that this had taken place. But for those in on the secret, like us, reading the story, it does make this scene shift to the shepherd boy from Bethlehem a bit more interesting, doesn't it? It's a bit more exciting because we want to see what part does this promised king, this boy who was too young to join the army, what part is he about to play? We return to our story in verse 16 and chapter 17 reminds us that back in the valley of Elah, Elah, Goliath was doing his thing. He'd been doing it for 40 days. Philistine came forward and took stand morning and then he'd return in the evening waging this psychological warfare on the Israelites. Twice a day for 40 days, Goliath repeated the act. Out he came with his dazzling, terrifying array of armor and weaponry and shield bearer, shouting his threats, his abuse on the Israelites. Twice a day for 40 days, he had raged with no response from Israel. People of Israel on their side of the valley trembled and were dismayed and fearful for 40 days. They must have been wondering how long is this going to go on? Is there any end in sight? Does anybody have a plan? How do we get out of this? As far as we can tell, the news about Goliath and what he was doing did not reach Bethlehem. There was no social media in those days, no 24-7 news broadcasts or embedded news reporters. And so back in Bethlehem, there was Jesse, David's 
father. And of course, he was thinking about his three sons who were away with the army fighting the Philistines. Verse 17, Jesse said to his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also take ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well. This is something David had apparently done before. He'd been running messages back, messages back and forth. His dad would send him off with some gifts of food for his sons. Once to get word of them, some treats for the commanding officer probably to ingratiate him a bit, treat my sons well. And Jesse's reason for wanting to check on his son, his right sons, his three eldest sons, is right there in verse 19. Now Saul and they, that is the brothers, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah. Verse, first part of verse 19. And, and that bit's right. He got that right. But notice the second part. Fighting the Philistines. That's not quite right, is it? That's what Jesse thought was going on. That's what probably most of Israel thought was going on. But we know that King Saul and the army of Israel, including the brothers, were doing nothing of the sort. They were trembling with terror at the menacing Philistine in the middle of the valley with his abuse, his scorn, and his threats. They were petrified, unmoving. Were they fighting the Philistines? No. They were paralyzed in their fear. But Jesse didn't know that. David didn't even know that yet. So young David set off on his errand, verse 20. David arose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded. All's pretty straightforward. A young boy obeying his father, going to check on his brothers. Then verse 20. He arrives at the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting a war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David arrived just at the right moment, if you're a teenage boy. The army was lining up on their side of the valley. There was shouting. There was lots of noise. David, remember, he doesn't know much about the situation at the moment. But he must have thought that at any moment, the fighting is about to begin. Well, David was too much of a boy to miss this. Verse 22, what does he do? He leaves the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and he runs to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Now at this point, it's probably best that his father and certainly his mother couldn't see him. I'm pretty sure David was not meant to go to the battle lines. He was too young and too small after all. Well, there's too many moms that wanted any of their sons, much less the youngest running to the battle line. But if David was hoping to see some fighting, he was in for a bit of a surprise, Right? Verse 23, as he talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, that Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out from the ranks of the Philistines. And he spoke the same words as before. But he was now being seen for the first time. Not by us, we've already read about this, not by anyone else in the valley of Elah, but by David. This Philistine terrorist, if you will, repeated his abusive threats as he's been doing twice a day, every day, for 40 days. And we heard him last week in verse 10. We heard what he said. He said, I defy, I mock the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. But there's a difference this time. And it's a difference that's going to be very important. Although I would suggest that no one could have guessed it at that time. It's noted at the end of verse 23. See those words? And David heard him. 
David heard him. Now, did anyone else care that a young boy from Bethlehem heard Goliath that day? I doubt it. But this is the turning point. And it's actually going to turn out to be the turning point in the history of the world. But no one in the Valley of Elah knew it that day. They wouldn't have recognized it. As far as everyone on this side, that is the northern side of the Valley of Elah, was concerned, nothing had changed since the day before, since the first time they had heard Goliath. But God's unexpected ways were at work. Because there was a young boy from Bethlehem there that day. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man Goliath, well, they also repeated the same act they've been doing for 40 days, day and night. They fled from him. They were much afraid. The fear had not abated. Time had not made this less fearful, less fearsome, had not dampened or made them somehow immune or callous to the fear of death. They fled in terror. That's what Goliath did to people. He scared them. That's what the fear of death, the threat of death does to people today. It terrifies them. And what was King Saul planning to do about this situation? I mean, he is the king after all. Not only that, he had been put in place, you may remember from the early chapters of 1 Samuel, he was put in place specifically to deal with the Philistine threat. He just hadn't done a very good job of it. In fact, the little bit of victories he had are often described as not very good ones. You may also remember he was head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. He was chosen for his stature, for his strength. He was the closest thing the Israelites had to a Goliath of Gath. Had he decided that he would go and face the dreadful enemy himself? Well, not exactly. Nor had he drawn up a battle plan to leave the troops down into the valley and deal with the invaders. Nothing of the sort. We do find out what he was planning to do, or at least his strategy. Verse 25. The men of Israel were talking amongst themselves. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Nothing new there. But then it says, and they, then they began spreading the word that the king's solution to the problem is to throw money at it. King Saul will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. He will give him his daughter. He will make his father's house free in Israel. No more taxes. Apparently that was just as much of an attraction then as it would be now. Everyone was talking now about Saul's incentive scheme, this monetary solution to get them out of the mess. And David picked up on the chatter of what was going on around him. In verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done to the man or for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You might have noticed that David had two questions there. There wasn't just one. The first one had to do with Saul's solution to the problem. What did you say again? How much money? What will he do? But the second question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does this Philistine think he is? Said this young boy from Bethlehem. Now, no one among the Israelites had been talking like that. They hadn't been talking at all. They'd been running in fear. King Saul hadn't been talking like that, though he stood head and shoulders above all the other men. No one. They had been trembling with terror. They were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. But this young, small boy, 
David? Well, he was outraged. Quite a different response. If this uncircumcised Philistine that is this pagan worshiper of dead gods, that he was mocking not only Israel, but Israel's God, the God who had chosen him, who had anointed him as the next king over Israel just a short time before. Now again, we need to try and appreciate as, as best we can how this situation would have looked. David's words were extraordinary in that situation. They were remarkable in that situation. They were unexpected in that situation. If you had heard them that day, if you were one of the fearful Israelites, how do you think you would have reacted? First off, his words couldn't help but to sting a bit, wouldn't they? Maybe you'd look at it and say, well, this is the bravado of a teenager, the naivety of a child. Did he not see the giant? What's wrong with this kid? But it had to prick their consciences a bit, too. That this had been anything but their response. The people answered David's first question in verse 27, but David's second question, well, they didn't have a response. I guess that's actually, if you look a little further, that's not entirely true. Someone did say something in response to David. It was one of those who was closest to David, who knew him better than most, right? It was his older brother, Eliab. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. But notice Eliab's response. His anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come here? Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. It's not entirely wrong. David did run down from the camp to see the battle when he heard the battle array. But is that really what was at work in David's heart? Was it wickedness at work? Where did this animosity, this vitriol come from? On the one hand, to him, David was an annoying young nuisance. That was probably there. In his mind, he had come along just for the excitement. He was getting in the way. This is a typical older brother. David was too big for his britches. He should be back looking after that little flock of sheep. That's his job. This is no place for a child. But again, I can't help but think that it was stinging his conscience a bit too. Here he was, the eldest of his family, and he was shirking back, running in fear and terror, and here's his little brother showing him up. And perhaps even more than that, Eliab was still feeling the sting of being passed over in 1 Samuel 16 when David was anointed as future king. Remember, he was lined up with the rest of his brothers, and God said to Samuel, it's none of these. So Samuel turns around and says, God didn't choose any of these. You got any others? I mean, how would you have felt standing there? Then to watch your youngest brother be anointed as the future king. Perhaps you've not been able to move past that quite yet. Like Joseph's older brothers, there was a certain amount of jealousy at work. Well, David responded, somewhat like a, you would expect the younger brother to respond here in verse 29. David said, what have I done now? Was it just a word? Can't I even speak? If you've had an older brother or sister, you might understand how young David was feeling. Verse 30, he turned away from Eliab towards another, just ignored him and walked away. 
But then he kept speaking. He kept asking the same questions, the same two questions. And the people answered him again as before. And so the boy moved from one group of soldiers to the other, asking again these unexpected, remarkable questions in light of what everyone else and how everyone else was responding and how they were thinking. Again, I, think, I can't help but think that many who heard him that day felt that pricking of their conscience. Probably just made him more annoying and allowed them to point to his youthfulness as just a nuisance. But how wrong they were. You see, God was at work and no one recognized it. No one in the Valley of Elah on the northern slopes that day had any idea that this boy from Bethlehem could be, would be, the one through whom God would save the people from their terrible enemy. I'm sure it never crossed the mind of any of the soldiers, including, of course, his big brothers, that the help that they desperately needed, the Savior they needed, would come from Bethlehem, much less from their little brother. But again, they were making a big mistake, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. Because, as we started with, God's ways are not our ways. We're going to pause here again in this, I think is a wonderful story. But as we pause, we need to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? In this this journey, this progress from fear to faith that we've talked about that we're going to see throughout this narrative. What does it mean for us? What are we to make of this young lad from the quiet town of Bethlehem and his somewhat audacious questions that day? We see a thousand years after the events that have been witnessed this morning that David showed up, a descendant of that young lad was born in the town of Bethlehem. And as he grew up, he went around saying things that were even more provocative, more surprising, more audacious than anything David said that day in the Valley of Elah. And he pricked persons' consciences more than David ever could have. In fact, those who knew him best or who thought they did, those from his own town who had seen him grow up, well, they reacted a bit like Eliab did or Eliab. Maybe you remember this from our study of Matthew and the end of Matthew 13, those from his hometown started saying to themselves, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Julius, and are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Who does he think he is? You may remember the closing, a prophet is not honored in his hometown. They took offense at him. It was a mistake, maybe an understandable mistake, but it was a big mistake. And it's still a big mistake today for us to take offense at the unexpected ways of God. How often do we get upset because God doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should? God doesn't act the way we think he should. It probably doesn't cross the minds of many today that the help that we need, the help that we really need, comes from Bethlehem. If we need someone to deal with the terrifying power that Goliath wielded, the power of death, we need to be prepared to hear about a God whose ways are not our ways. 
When we pray for an answer to prayer, we need to be prepared to deal with a God who acts in ways that are unlike the way we expect him to act. We need to remember that a Savior has come and he came in the most unexpected of ways. He was born in Bethlehem. And he came to do to death what we are going to see David do to Goliath and the Philistines in the coming weeks. We must not be like the Israelites in the valley. We must not be like Eliab who thought young David was not worth taking seriously. You see, to trust God, we must be prepared for the unexpected. What God does here, what he did in the history of the world is unexpected. And in both cases, it came from Bethlehem. God's ways are not our ways. Do not despise the day of small things, as the prophet Zechariah said. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're still living enslaved to fear. Maybe you haven't put your finger on it, but when I say that it's a fear of death, you realize that's it. I don't know what's going to come. You see, all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory, as Paul tells us in Romans 3. I also know that the wages of sin is death. The good news for you this morning is that a Savior came from Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and his name is Jesus Christ. That is good news for every one of us in that, this room. He came to deliver you from the power of sin and the fear of death. If you have never done this, the question before you this morning is will you repent of your sin and call out to him this morning? Put your trust in him, your faith in him, your hope in him, your confidence in him. And for those who have experienced the joy of this salvation, for us, we need to remember Paul's encouragement to the church of Corinth because we do expect things of God. And we need to be reminded that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As the prophet Amos described, he is a roaring lion. I like the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where they're watching, they're looking for Aslan and asked, is, is not Aslan a, a lion? Is he a tame lion? Is he safe? The response is, he is not safe. But he's wonderful. We do not tame God. We do not make God act the way we want him to act. What appears as foolishness to this world, what appears as weakness to the world, is the power of Christ. The question is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that God's ways, however unexpected, that God's instructions, however odd they may seem, that God's pattern for our life, no matter how hard it may be to live out, is really the best? That they are there for our salvation? For your salvation? Well, we will begin to see the conclusion to God's answer to dealing with fear and to the faith he promises and provides in the weeks ahead. And I hope you'll be here with us for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that you are not tame that you act unexpectedly, that your ways are not our ways. And Father, while on the one hand that uncertainty 
in a world where we like certainty, can be somewhat fearful. Father, we know you. You are not a God who is far off. You are a God who has made yourself known. And God, you have demonstrated your love toward us, your kindness toward us, your goodness toward us. You visit your people and care for them. You have revealed your character to us and you are a God that can be trusted. No, you don't act according to our ways, but Father, your ways are too wonderful for us. We could not comprehend, we could not fathom your ways. We thank you for your provision that day in the Valley of Elah and this young boy, David. But Father, we thank you even more so for that provision 2,000 years ago in that little town of Bethlehem our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we praise and worship and give thanks for this morning. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.